When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. As I told you before, we've teamed up with Doximity to connect you with program directors, residents from top programs to help you navigate your specialty choice and the residency process as a whole. You should check out the Residency Navigator at residency.doximity.com to get the most transparent and useful advice on programs you're considering. Doximity is the leading professional network for doctors. Match smarter with Doximity's Residency Navigator, residency.doximity.com. And in conjunction with the Match Smarter series, Doximity is giving away a $100 Amazon gift card. You can complete your Doximity profile, and if you do so by December 30th, 2016, you will be entered to win that $100 Amazon gift card. Go to docs, that's D-O-X dot I-M slash inside the boards or Grab the link from today's show notes page. Welcome back to the ITB podcast. Today we are discussing neurology with Stephen Gangloff, who is a neurology resident at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And we are covering a few high-yield questions regarding headache for the boards. These are mostly step two or shelf level, but there's some step one relevance here as well. The questions are taken from the Open Osmosis QBank. As I've said before, you should check out Osmosis at osmosis.org. It's a personalized learning platform that can make your medical education more efficient by combining your study for preclinical or clinical coursework and the relevant standardized exams related thereto. So let's just take a look at a few neurology questions since we are discussing neurology as a specialty today in conjunction with the Doximity Match Smarter segment. First, a 45-year-old female comes to the emergency department because of the worst headache of her life for the past four hours. The headache came on suddenly while she was writing on the computer. She says the emergency department is far too bright and asks for the lights to be switched off. Medical history is non-contributory. Her temperature is 36.8 degrees Celsius, that's 98 Fahrenheit. Pulse is 87 beats per minute. Respirations are 18 per minute. And blood pressure is 117 over 78. Examination shows Brudzinski's sign is positive. A CT scan of the head is reported as normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Cerebral angiogram B. Craniotomy C. 
discharge, D, lumbar puncture, or E, magnetic resonance imaging? And the answer is D, lumbar puncture. Okay, so this is another one of those uh, classic boards scenarios. So the worst headache of my life uh, is sort of a buzz phrase um, or an indicator of subarachnoid hemorrhage. It should be at least. So a subarachnoid hemorrhage is bleeding into the subarachnoid space, aptly named, right? So the area between the arachnoid membrane and the pia mater, uh, which surrounds the brain. And they can occur spontaneously, as in the case of a ruptured cerebral aneurysm, or they can be the result of head injury and trauma. So the signs you want to look for with a subarachnoid hemorrhage are a severe headache, the worst headache of my life, sometimes called a thunderclap headache, that occurs rapidly in onset, associated with vomiting, confusion, a lower level of consciousness, and occasionally seizures. But the real hallmark is that thunderclap headache. In general, you can diagnose a subarachnoid hemorrhage with a CT scan of the head. It's about 93% sensitive and 99% specific for detecting subarachnoid hemorrhage. But this is the kind of learning point to pay attention to. If there's a high index of suspicion for a subarachnoid hemorrhage and a CT scan of the head is negative. So basically, you have somebody with a sudden onset thunderclap headache or worst headache of my life. You do a CT scan and it's negative. On the boards, the next step in management is a lumbar puncture. The lumbar puncture in a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage will yield a straw or yellow-colored fluid, xanthochromia, indicating the presence of oxidized red blood cells. Cerebral spinal fluid fills the subarachnoid space, the area between the arachnoid membrane and the pia mater, and is normally clear and colorless. However, if bleeding occurs into the subarachnoid space, the red blood cells in the CSF are destroyed, releasing heme which then gets broken down to bilirubin, causing a yellow pigmentation. So another way you might kind of see this information tested would be a vignette that describes somebody with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. A lumbar puncture is performed, and then you're asked, which of the followings is the most likely finding? And the answer choices could be, like increased white blood cells, trying to get you to think of like a infectious meningitis, could be decreased CSF glucose, an indicator of bacterial meningitis, markedly elevated protein with essentially unchanged RBCs, white blood cells, glucose, etc., indicating albuminocytologic dissociation, a marker for Guillain-Barre syndrome, or whatever the answer choices might be. But if the vignette describes subarachnoid hemorrhage and they ask which of the following findings is most likely on a lumbar puncture, you would want to pick xanthochromia, which is that yellowish tinge to the fluid. So let's go through the distractors really quick. A was cerebral angiogram. Angiography is completed after confirming a subarachnoid hemorrhage. If the bleeding uh, is likely to have originated from an aneurysm, the choice is between a cerebral angiography proper, injecting you know, radio contrast through a catheter to the arteries of the brain, 
and CT angiography, which would be visualizing the blood vessels with radio contrast on a CT scan. And that would be to to identify uh, the location and, and specify therapy uh, in the case of an aneurysm. Choice B, craniotomy. Craniotomy is one of the options for approaching management of a cerebral aneurysm. So you diagnose a subarachnoid hemorrhage, you diagnose the cause as an aneurysm, you localize the aneurysm via angiography, and then you're left with two options to reduce the risk of further bleeding from that aneurysm. Either surgical clipping, which requires craniotomy, or coiling, which is an endovascular approach. Choice C was discharge. It's enough to say that if somebody presents with the worst headache of their life on a board exam, discharge is not going to be the correct answer and and probably isn't is sort of unlikely to be an answer choice as well. Answer choice E was an MRI. CT scan is over 90% sensitive and specific for detecting subarachnoid bleeding, so an MRI is not the best choice in imaging a suspected subarachnoid hemorrhage. All right, let's move on to another question. A 25-year-old man comes to the emergency department because of severe pain behind his right eye. He has been awakened nightly by the pain over the past week. He denies nausea, vomiting, or photosensitivity. Physical examination reveals increased tearing in the right eye, but an otherwise normal neurologic examination. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Temporal arteritis. B. Migraine. C. Cluster headache. D. Trigeminal neuralgia. Or E. Conversion disorder. And the answer is... C. Cluster headache. Cluster headache is one of those headache causes that you absolutely need to know. Cluster headaches are unilateral, presenting with episodes of severe retroorbital or temporal um, pain that lasts anywhere from 15 minutes to a couple hours. The demographic you have to keep in mind, and this is a general rule, so a young male who presents with some severe headache localized around one eye and has some associated symptoms like tearing, um, nasal congestion, red eye, pupillary constriction, that's going to be a cluster headache. It's probably most important with respect to cluster headache to be able to identify it as, you know, that excruciating periorbital headache lasting from minutes to a couple hours, especially with associated ipsilateral lacrimation. The next step in managing an acute cluster headache attack, however, is high flow oxygen, and they also can be treated with triptans or ergot alkaloids. But for the purposes of board study, diagnosis of cluster headache is going to be more important than knowing the treatment. If you do have to know the treatment, I would lean towards picking oxygen just because it's kind of a unique modality. And that brings up an important point that when it comes to board exam question writing, you know, if there are five different options to treat a condition and there isn't sort of a universally agreed upon set standard of treatment, like azithromycin being the drug of choice to treat 
a chlamydial infection, the boards are most likely going to shy away from getting into aspects of treatment because it's hard to say what is clearly right and clearly wrong. And on an examination, while the answer choices tend to exist on a continuum of less likely to most likely, and it's the single best answer that gets scored as correct, there has to be a clear single best answer. All right, so that's enough about cluster headaches. Let's go through the distractors. A was temporal arteritis. Temporal arteritis usually affects elderly patients and presents with systemic symptoms, uh, fever, headache in a temporal location. It's associated with an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate and a palpable, kind of like pulseless, firm temporal artery. Those would be classic findings. Migraine is a primary, which was choice B, is a primary headache disorder with recurrent headaches that are moderate to severe, but individuals suffering from migraines more often describe that hallmark throbbing type of of pain characterization. I've always liked the pound mnemonic for migraine. Pound, which is itself something that characterizes migraine pain, it's it's pulsatile, like it throbs, it increases and decreases, crescendo, decrescendo. But the mnemonic pound itself is pulsatile quality of headache, P, one day of duration, although four to 72 hours can be the, the, the duration of a migraine, unilateral, the U, nausea or vomiting, and disabling intensity, pound. So people with four of these symptoms have about a 92% chance of having a migraine as a cause of their headache. And these aren't the only diagnostic criteria. However, if you remember pound for pulsatility, one-day duration, unilaterality, nausea, and disabling intensity, it can help you distinguish on the boards some migraine-type picture from tension headache, cluster headache, and other causes of headache. D, trigeminal neuralgia, is a neuropathy of the trigeminal nerve, cranial nerve 5, with the classic presentation being a patient with extreme facial pain in the area of the trigeminal nerve distribution when air blows across the face. Conversion disorder was choice E, the diagnosis for those with Sensory or motor disturbances, essentially neurologic symptoms for which there isn't an identifiable or attributable neurologic cause, right? So more of a psychiatric diagnosis. All right, next question. A 55-year-old Caucasian female presents to the clinic with complaints of a sharp stabbing pain on the left side of her face, which comes and goes intermittently. She denies any loss of sensation or paresthesias. The treatment of choice for her condition is which of the following? A. Carbamazepine B. Inhaled oxygen C. Clonazepam D. Tamoxifen or E. Lamotrigine The answer is A. Carbamazepine All right, so I wanted to, to pick this short question, short vignette, to highlight this important fact, carbamazepine, the tricyclic anticonvulsant drug, is the drug of choice for trigeminal neuralgia. Trigeminal neuralgia is characterized by recurrent 
paroxysmal sharp stabbing pain in one or more branches of the trigeminal nerve, especially unilaterally, most commonly occurs after age 50 and more common in women than men. And carbamazepine is the first-line treatment for trigeminal neuralgia. That is definitely a fact you'd want to take with you on test day. And because that is such an important learning point, not even going to discuss the other distractors. All right, next question. A 60-year-old woman comes to the office because of progressively worse headaches and blurred vision over the past week. She also reports a history of low-grade fevers over the course of the last month. She has a 20-year history of systemic lupus erythematosus. Physical examination shows tenderness to palpation in the temporal area. Laboratory studies are significant for an elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Administration of glucocorticoids. B. MRI of the brain. C. Sumatriptan. D. Temporal artery biopsy. E. 100% inhaled oxygen. And the answer is A, administration of glucocorticoids. All right, so another kind of classic thing that medical students need to know, and that is this learning point. If you have somebody with giant cell arteritis or temporal arteritis or a high suspicion for that condition, the next step in management is administration of glucocorticoids. Just let that sink in. Okay, so don't make this mistake on the boards. So the interrogatory, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management, is one where you should pause and collect yourself before looking at the answer choices. And the reason is because sometimes, uh, depending on the situation, some people will read that as, how do I diagnose this condition, right? or which of these treatments is the most efficacious. However, in medicine, the objectively best thing, whether it's the most sensitive diagnostic test, the most effective drug therapy, etc., is often not the most appropriate next step in management. But for giant cell arteritis, administration of glucocorticoids is the next best step in management. Why? Well, because... Involvement of the ophthalmic artery in this vasculitis can lead to permanent vision loss if untreated. So patients are usually given like an oral glucocorticoid like prednisone. And importantly, the glucocorticoid should be initiated prior to obtaining a temporal artery biopsy. So the temporal artery biopsy is the thing most likely to diagnose a giant cell arteritis. Clues to the diagnosis for giant cell or temporal arteritis are a history of systemic lupus erythematosus, systemic symptoms like fever, malaise, or weight loss, preceding development of throbbing headaches over the temporal area. Patients with suspected giant cell arteritis should immediately be given glucocorticoids, and a temporal artery biopsy should then be performed to confirm the diagnosis. And again, because I think that that, those points about giant cell arteritis are so important, I'm not even going to distract you with a discussion of the other choices. We will move right on to the interview 
Today we have Stephen Gangloff, who is a first-year resident in neurology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, uh, where he has also uh, served on the Graduate Medical Education Planning Committee. And besides being a resident, he also has his hands in multiple entrepreneurial ventures, including Dehydrate to Store, which is an educational website um, that teaches people how to dehydrate food for long-term storage. That's dehydratetostore.com dehydrate the number two store.com so you guys can check that out well today we're going to talk a little bit about neurology the first thing i'd like to ask you is why be a neurologist i think it's a really hard question for any medical student to figure out during their time uh so for me starting med school i had no idea really what i wanted to do in terms of specialty um but i immediately fell in love with the science of neurology when I took the course. I loved to, it was my favorite thing to learn about, my favorite class. Uh, I love the physiology and the types of illnesses that are treated. So I started shadowing early on in medical school and then eventually did my rotation really in my third year. And the just the people I worked with, the types of patients that we treat, they were the most the most moving to me and the and the most touching. And I felt that I could really do a good job in this field. And it's also a field that has so much left to learn and and so much to grow. You know, there's a lot of research opportunities and ability to grow in the field so much. So that's another thing that really drew me to it. And I'm sure um, people have asked you, neurology has this, I think, surrounding kind of evaluation from outsiders uh, in medicine that you guys are excellent diagnosticians, but you can't actually treat diseases. That is a very, you know, very oversimplified view of it. But how would you meet that challenge or response? So yeah, I definitely think that that's a um, interpretation by a lot of people for neurology. And actually, before I, I knew much about the field, that's what I thought too. My mind has changed a lot in, in that regard. So a lot of times people would say that you know there's there's nothing you can do. But I feel like in medicine, there's there's never really a point where there's nothing you can do. You can always provide, even if if there's not a lot in in regards to treatment options, there are things you can provide in terms of uh, comfort to families and rehabilitation and things like that. And so I think even in, in the most grave of situations, there's always a potential to provide care to patients and their families. And a lot of neurologic illnesses, as you, as you said, are difficult to treat and, and can have grave prognoses. However, uh, there's also a lot of illnesses in neurology that we, we can treat really well. And the field is growing in, in our ability to treat illness and our breadth of medications and uh, therapies is really growing. So I think we've come a long way in stroke, multiple sclerosis, uh, a lot of a lot of illnesses. And did you consider any other specialty choices when you were a medical student? I feel like I considered everything, at least for a period of time. As I mentioned, I, I when I started, I really had no idea what specific field I wanted to go into. So I felt like I was always jumping around. One week I wanted to be a cardiologist, and the next I wanted to be an emergency medicine doctor. And it, it was a long process of three years kind of trying out different things and determining what I liked and didn't like in different specialties. So at some point, I considered most fields. Up until the end, I was I was most uh, interested in neurology, but I also considered things similar to neurology, like ophthalmology or even uh, radiology and, uh, with a focus on neurology. So, And what ultimately swayed you? Um, so I feel like just looking back on my experience in medical school, the courses I took in neurology and the rotations were my favorite and the most rewarding. And I knew I wanted to be a physician who saw patients primarily and spent a lot of time with patients. And I felt like the combination of loving the science 
and interacting with patients on that level made neurology ideal for me. What does it take to be a neurology resident? How do you make yourself stand out as an applicant to this specialty? Neurology is a um, very cerebral field. Uh, so No pun I think, intended. <laughs> no pun intended, yes. So I think for any specialty, there's important things, uh, you know, being a strong student and, and doing well on your board exams and things. But I think for neurology in particular, um, showing that you have a lot of interest in the field and enthusiasm towards the field is really important because it requires that that significant amount of thought and, and cerebral side to it. So another thing that's helpful to uh, neurology in particular is um, doing research in the field or at least showing that you've had an interest in the field of research. Now, it's not necessary in order to master neurology to complete a lot of research or publish a lot of papers, but it certainly helps in that it shows your enthusiasm toward the idea of scientific expansion. I think research helps uh, being a well-rounded applicant, having good stories about patients you've interacted with. If you have some ability to show your humanistic side in medicine, uh, such as being a part of uh, old humanism or some other venues such as that, I think that helps as well. If you had to actually choose the top three aspects of a residency application, what would you pick as the three top ones for neurology? I think letters of recommendation are very important once you get your interviews to places. And I think that that plays a large role because it shows really a side of you that you can't get anywhere else in the application, such as your clinical abilities. And that's really important uh, with patients, especially, I think, in neurology. So I'd say letters of recommendation are very important. Your board scores are very important. Um, I think that's that's unfortunately part of any, any uh, residency application. So board scores are up there. And... I think research puts a nice icing on top of the cake, too. So uh, I would consider that one of the important ones as well. All right. Let's say you have a third-year medical student, end of third year. They're taking a, a required neurology clerkship for four weeks or something like that. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, man, this is the specialty I've been missing. I want to do neurology. How would you help them decide or navigate the decision between, say, two specialties? Maybe they like neurology um, just as much as they like ophthalmology or, or internal medicine. It's really important to kind of take a step back and just evaluate yourself first um, before deciding on what specialty to do. So think about the way you are, the way you think, and the way you want to live as a career, because being a physician is a, obviously it's a long road to become a physician, and then being a physician is not easy either. So you want to be in a field that you truly enjoy. So in my my opinion, um, you should put aside things like uh, how much money are you making or what's the um, what's the status of that field, and more concerned about what types of things make you happy in your career or do you think would make you happy in your career. For instance, me, I knew that I wanted to be able to provide care to individuals who really need it and who were at hard times in their life. I wanted to be able to do a clinical setting, but also have the opportunity to uh, work in a hospital setting. I think you have to be able to really step back and step back and look at yourself. Do do I and do I enjoy doing procedures for most of my day, or would I do I prefer prescribing medications, um, understanding physiology, and, and doing research or things like that, or, or what? What things, you know, make you as a physician? And, and once you know yourself, then you can make the decision of what specialty to go into, I think. So if a student's whittled it down to neurology and they've decided they're going to apply to a neurology residency, how do you choose which programs to rank? That's something I actually had a difficult time with at first because I felt like 
I feel like in medical school, the two most important decisions you make are what field of medicine do I go into and where am I going to do residency? Those are both huge decisions and they obviously impact the rest of your career and your life. And I felt like I spent so much time deciding on which field of medicine to go into when I finally made that decision and I, you know, I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I, and I was ready. Then I had to, uh, on the ERAS application, I had this huge list of schools all over the country. And then I suddenly had to decide, oh, wait a minute, where am I supposed to practice? Uh, am I going to move far away, be in a different state? So I think that it's a huge decision. And again, you have to kind of think about uh, things that you value and then put that in perspective with what you want from a program. So for me, uh, it was important to, uh, you know, my family all lives in the north Northeast uh, from Buffalo, New York. I wanted to be close to home. So I kind of narrowed it down to a geographic region, but still I was pretty lost. So uh, what I did um, at that point, that's kind of when I found the residency navigator application from Doximity. And I use that as a a huge tool in my whole process, uh, not only deciding my original application list, but then also coming down to it, um, narrowing my my uh, my choices and making my rank list. So the thing that I found that was great about that is I could narrow it down by geographic location in the Northeast, and then um, it would give me all the programs, and then it uses a lot of data to uh, to organize these and, and, and list these programs. And then when you when you select on each one, you get a lot more information inside. And, and the thing about that is it saves a lot of time as opposed to searching every individual website, trying to uh, tabulate everything together in an Excel spreadsheet and, and understand the programs. And for me, it, it helped me think of a lot of places I wouldn't have actually considered because they popped up on the list. And I said, oh, I never you know, I never thought about applying to uh, this program here in New York City or this program here in, in Pennsylvania. So it opened my eyes to programs that are really great that I wouldn't have considered. And then um, that helped me make my initial application list. And then once I had that, I could dive more into the programs and look at some of the great data it provides you is when you click on, let's say, University of Alabama or something, uh, it'll tell you the residents who have who have graduated from there, ultimately where they went to other programs in the country, what subspecialties they went into, um, which really helps. And there's a nice pie chart that shows, you know, maybe 80%, 90% of people from this program went into stroke neurology as a subspecialty and 10% went into sleep or something. That that says a lot about the program. It says they're pushing out a lot of stroke neurologists who can speak to the strength of the stroke program there. Um, so that was really helpful to me too. So just all the data and parameters that that come up when you when you look into each of these programs really helped me to get a bird's eye view of everything. And that's residency.doximity.com for the Residency Navigator tool. Just a reminder that that's the URL that you can go to and um, check out to get a number of uh, interesting metrics to help you make the decision on how to match smarter. Any other advice or tidbits of information you want to provide? Sure. I think one thing that's kind of important for the application and interview process, so um Uh, Definitely make sure you get your applications and things squared away pretty early on. You don't want to submit your applications late. Um, As soon as it opens that you can submit, try to do it that day. You'll actually find that ERAS likes to uh, crash. So everyone tries to (laughs) submit at the same time and it pretty much crashes reliably every year. But um, try to do it, you know, the day it opens. So the application opens around June and then uh, the the actual like, so that's when you can start filling out things. And the actual submission date is somewhere in like September where you can finally uh, submit um, do it as early as you can, and then uh, you'll find out that you start getting interview requests pretty soon after that. And then I think from that point, once you get the interview invite, just keep in mind that you got it for a reason. 
that program likes you. So you've made it past the first step. The next step is the interview process. And that's where I think it should actually become less stressful for you. I think a lot of people get more stressed for the interview process. But I think at that point, once you get that interview, it shows that you've you've meet whatever parameters they need to be a qualified applicant to their program. And now you should try to relax and, and focus more on being yourself. And that will help you really determine what program is most right for you. When you go to the interview and you can you can relax, you can be yourself, meet the residents, meet the faculty. Uh, that not only makes you look like a stronger applicant because you're confident and able to carry on a conversation and, and uh, speak freely to these these people, but um, also it it will help you uh, you know do a better job and with the interview process itself. So, and then you'll determine which programs are uh, best for you if you're if you're you know being yourself and you really enjoy your 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 time at any particular place. So yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Good luck uh, in the rest of residency. And in the show notes, I will put a link to uh, Stephen Gangloff's Doximity profile so you can connect with him. And don't forget to use the Residency Navigator tool. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the call and and for reaching out to to do this. It was uh, a lot of fun. The music for today's show is thanks to The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. The song is I Can Be Afraid of Anything off Harmlessness. You can follow them on Twitter at T-W-I-A-B-P. That's The World is a Beautiful Place. Or check out their website, theworldisabeautifulplace.com. Thanks, guys, for letting us use the tune and keep making great music. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of inside the boards or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.